Today's reading is from 2 Corinthians 8, verses 16 to chapter 9, verse 5. It can be found on page 967 on the Church Bibles. 968, I lie. But thanks be to God who put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care I have for you. For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he is going to you of his own accord. With him, we are sending the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. And not only that, but he has been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace that is being ministered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our goodwill. We take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us. For we aim at what is honourable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. And with them we are sending our brother, whom we have often tested and found earnest in many matters, but who is now more earnest than ever because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker for your benefit. And as for our brothers, they are messengers of the, of the churches, the glory of Christ. So give proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you to these men. Now it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints. For I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I am sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready, and as I said, you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready, we would be humiliated, to say nothing of you for being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised, so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. Well, thanks to all who have uh, led us in different ways uh, in the service. Before we kick off with uh, 2 Corinthians, just a bit of church family uh, news. Thank you to uh, everyone who was involved in the uh, funeral service on Friday for Nora's story. Nora was 99. Um, she was once all of your age. And uh, we saw some uh, wonderful pictures of her uh, when she was awarded a PhD in chemistry in 1942, I think it was, remarkably, and, and uh, her marriage and her family life. Um, she died as a, as a true Christian. So thank you to all who helped uh, with that. Um, very early this morning, Mary Burke, um, who was not 99 but 101, uh, went to be with the Lord Jesus. Mary was converted in her 70s, soundly converted, and her whole life changed around uh, at that point. She was a sweet lady, um, lovingly cared for by folks in the church family here. Uh, one of uh, our folks, Anne McNeely, uh, had a conversation on the phone with uh, Mary in her care home every single night for the last uh, three years so that she would go to sleep with 
a hymn in our mind or a prayer or the word of God. And uh, so these two ladies, combined age of 200, uh, are with the Lord and we'll pray for their uh, families. Um, my predecessor in Chalmers, as it was, St. Catherine's then, was a man called Victor Laidlaw. Uh, he had a profound influence on in my life. He, the, I think probably the best 15 months of my life, working life, were when I was assistant to him way back in 2001. Last Saturday, well, uh, Victor had a catastrophic stroke and uh, is not expected to, uh, to live. He has no consciousness, no ability uh, in his brain. And it's good for us just to pray for Victor and Sheila. Um, some of the folks here this morning uh, know them very, very well. And uh, many of you don't, but um, be good to pray uh, for them uh, this morning and their family. And there are folks in our own church, um, David Vosch, uh, uh, he buries his mum this coming Tuesday. So lots of stuff um, going on. And let's just pause and remember we're a family and pray for those in need. Lord Jesus, we thank you for Nora and Mary, 200 years between them, and uh, clear, clear Christians who have now gone to be with the Lord Jesus Thank you that their souls are now with him. And we pray, Lord, for their children. Pray for those who gathered on Friday for the funeral here. Pray in particular for the grandchildren, some of whom used to be really engaged and keen on spiritual things, but have turned away. Bring them back, we ask. And uh, for Mary's children, Patricia and David, many grandchildren and their families, we pray for them in the rawness of this January day, as they um, uh, grieve for their mum. The fact that she's 101 makes it no different when your mother uh, dies. Lord, we pray for um, our elder David as he meets to um, bury his own mum on uh, Tuesday coming. We pray for encouragement for him and um, as he speaks in the service. And for the previous minister of this church, Victor, and Sheila, his wife, and their children and grandchildren, and all the churches that he was and still is associated with, we commend him to you this morning and pray that if, as it seems to be, he will not recover, that he will not linger and linger and linger, but uh, come to the end of his life on earth and go to be with you. Comfort Sheila. Uh, this morning as she sits uh, by his side. And all these things we bring to you in the hope and confidence of the gospel because these people um, have clear and strong faith in Jesus. And we pray this in his name and for his sake. Amen. Um, in my um, increasingly number of years as a minister, I've never, ever known a situation when there is a death within the church family and there is only one. They come in, in, in sort of threes or fours or twos. And, and I, I wonder why that is. I've, it happens. Is it, is it because God gives a church family that ability to collectively share uh, the grief? Is it because a family who has been bereaved is able to care for others as they go through that? Or is it for folks who 
who aren't Christians, who are around a church, who, who are confronted in a very strong way for a season with uh, life and uh, death. Now, let's turn to 2 Corinthians chapters uh, 8 and 9. If you can have the Bible um, in front of you, that will really help. And there are some um, simple headings on the back of the service sheet. Um, two things by way of uh, intro, quickly. Um, uh, firstly, um, we are um, engaging in a period of uh, review of our giving as a church. We face a financial uh, challenge, and uh, we're transparent about that. And that's one of the uh, major things we'll focus on when we meet on Tuesday night for the church uh, meeting. And uh, part of that will be to share the facts of that. But the most important thing by far is uh, for all of us to listen to what God says in his word about giving. One of the, the real concerns we had as, as, as elders in the church is the timing of this major review in giving. It's not like great timing. And we can't help it because we face a situation and have to respond. But what really comforted us is that when we knew that we had to speak about this and we had to have this meeting, um, we found ourselves in our term planner, right landed um, on 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. And that is not a coincidence. Uh, I firmly believe it is God's planning and his providence that in the middle of this season of giving, the word of God uh, for us, and the Bible is a big book with a lot of chapters, we find ourselves landed on the two key chapters in the New Testament on, on giving. And it's really settled us and encouraged us on this important subject. So I want to commend to you that when you hear about the numbers and you hear about how Christians go about giving, the most important thing by far is to listen prayerfully to God and to trust what he says. Now we're in these two chapters, 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, two of the key chapters in the New Testament on giving. And the context is this. Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, a year earlier, the church, uh, Paul, had, uh, uh, Paul had appealed to all of the churches he had an association with that they will give financially to support the, the poor churches in Jerusalem. They needed money in Jerusalem. So Paul wrote to all the churches, and the Corinthian church said, we will support this. They were first in the queue. They said, look, we will support this. We will give uh, money. And because of what they said, lots of other churches came on board with that vision like, the Philippian church and the Thessalonican church and the Berean church. And uh, um, so year on, the other churches have made good their promise and they've given, and the Corinthian church is still to do so. And that's why Paul writes this letter uh, uh, to them. Now, if you have a look at the, the two chapters uh, sitting uh, side by side, the, the, the kind of structure is something like this. Chapter 8, 1 to 15, and we looked at that last week. Paul gives us, a, a, and them, inspiring examples of giving. He, he talks about the Macedonian churches and what they have done. Um, they were facing a tough, tough time, persecution. They, they were dirt poor. They had no money, uh, and yet they wanted, they, they were earnest. They were pressing Paul. We want to give. We want to be part of this. And uh, they gave according to their... Uh, their, their means out of uh, joy. And uh, Paul says, they're a great example, inspired by you, Corinthians. And, um, and then he moves to the example, the supreme example of the Lord Jesus, halfway through that first section. Um, and then the, the passage ends, uh, the, the chapters end, 9, 6 to 15. 
um, with, um, and the theme I've given it thus far might change as I prep it this week. Christian giving is like a harvest that brings glory to God. And today we've got the bit in the middle, chapter 8, 16 to 9, 5, that goes with the snappy and the exciting title, Managing Church Finances <laughs> in, a, in a Godly Way. You see why we don't publish the titles beforehand, because you might have gone somewhere um, else. Managing Church Finances in a Godly Way. Now, one of the things we do when we prep uh, our sermons, we do it on a Wednesday, we all get buffeted around and we come up with something better than we went in with. And uh, then quite often I'll listen to a sermon just to try and get some helpful applications. And I could not find a single sermon online on these verses. I, I, it's kind of it's tagged on to the one that comes before, the one that comes uh, after. And yet... This passage today is the heart of these chapters on giving. Now, you might be, and I think this ran with more cachet in service one, uh, you might be the kind of people that have tea towels or um, pictures or calendars with Bible texts on them. Any of you have that? And there were lots of uh, nods and empathy in service one, so I had to be careful what I said. I want you to imagine a, a Christian calendar um, uh, on giving, if there's such a thing. Uh, with text from 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. I'll let you worry about the pictures, but January would be definitely chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. Um, and then you would have, uh, we're not going to go through the whole year, just to say, February chapters 8, 3 and 4, March chapters 8 and 7, so on and so forth. And you'd start to, in our chapter, in our section in the middle, you would start to pick out some verses that you thought might be relevant. And then you would get to next week's passage, um, chapter 9, verse uh, 6 onwards, and you would go, oh, right, we've got to have a month for verse 6 of chapter 9. You read it, it's obvious. You've got to have one for um, chapter 9, verse 7, and verse 8, and verse 10, 11. And all of a sudden, you run out of months. And so what gets canned in the process is our passage today. Okay. And yet we face the fact that it's in the middle of this teaching. Now, humor aside, I guess, with that, there are three main reasons for scandals in a church. They're the reasons identified in the New Testament, and they are the reasons we read about again and again in the Christian press and sometimes in the wider press. And these three reasons for scandals are one, the abuse of authority or leadership. Both abuse from people in leadership and sometimes abuse of leaders. Moral failure brings scandal and financial irregularity. And, and they're the top three in the Bible and the top three in fact Abuse of authority, moral failure, and financial irregularity. Irregular. And when a scandal hits a church, just think of it in Chalmers. Chalmers is a stable, a happy, a good church. If you're new today, you're super welcome. Um, there's a lunch coming up, so it's well-timed. Um, Chalmers is a happy place to be. We've seen that over the course of the last four or five days as all manner of people have kicked in to care for those uh, who, are, who, are, who are dying 
But if you came to church this morning and there was a scandal because of the abuse of authority or because of moral failure or because of financial irregularity, we would be completely distracted from what matters most. The church would be unhappy. There would be casualties everywhere. And that church might never recover. And all too often, I get caught up in situations like that, trying to help them, other churches, and the damage done to people is never irreparable because of grace, but severe. And the impact is often felt way beyond that church because people have looked to that church as an example. So many of you here are undergraduate students, young in your faith. And say you finish up here and you're so encouraged by the church you were part of, and then you discover that there was major moral failure in those who looked after you. Now, that does not, that does not mean you turn away from Jesus, for he never, ever has failure. But humanly speaking, you lose all your confidence in the integrity of the church. It matters. And the impact is often far-reaching, and the public reputation of the gospel is damaged. The abuse of authority, moral failure, and financial irregularity. Now, when scandal hits a church, or when scandal hits the Christian press in in these uh, areas, almost certainly the abuse of authority and the moral failure and the financial irregularity has been going on for ages. And, And sometimes it never becomes a scandal because it's not severe enough, but it still breeds unhappiness and a destructive environment in the life of a church. Always when there is abuse of authority, it's been going on for ages. Moral failure, it's been going on quietly behind the scenes. And it might not be financial irregularity. It might well be that... uh, the, the, the church's finances meet the approval of Oscar, which is the charity regulator. But there is a lack of transparency. There is a lack of godliness. The wrong people or some one or two people are making all the decisions and nobody in the church who gives the money knows what's going on. And that leads to an unhappy environment. And I suspect in a church where that's going on, well, I know that that's true, uh, that many people in the church will draw back from giving. They'll be suspicious. They'll be concerned. They'll be anxious. And, and that church's finances may be strong, but probably only because it gets bailed out by somebody who'll say, oh, yeah, I'll give to support the ministry of that uh, church. Now, I split the passage into two. You'll see there, managing church finances in a godly way. And then secondly, it matters a great deal that you do what's promised. Now, just more on number one today, just a teensy bit on number two, um, because we'll pick up that uh, next time. So managing church finances in a godly way. Um, The reason Paul gives is in verses 20 to 21. Now, you're all looking at that little baby there and admiring. Is it him or a her? It's a her. She's very sweet, isn't she? 
Now, you've got to concentrate on God's word, okay? <laughs> it's great having, it was wonderful in the, the service on, on um, Friday, little kids there, little tiny kids. They're not distressed by the funeral, which is great to have them. It's great to have you here, little one. But concentrate the rest of you. Now, the reason Paul gives, yep, as to why all this matters is in verses 20 and 21. We take this course. Now, we're going to work out what that course is in a minute. What does he do? We do this or put procedures in place so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us. For we aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but in the sight of people. That's striking, isn't it? We want to do what's right by God, and we want to do what's right by people. You want to do what's right by God and be seen to be doing it right. There it is in black and white. Because financial scandals in the church are so very damaging. Now, what does Paul do? So, he, he, he doesn't do it all himself. He sets up a, a team of people to do it. But let's notice first what he does. So his is the vision for this whole giving project to the churches in Jerusalem. He sent out the invitations to the different churches to take part. And Paul writes about this giving project. Now, we are reading his letter to the Corinthian church. It's the Word of God. We're learning from it about giving. But it's still a real letter written to a real church. And Paul is transparent. He's open. He talks about the Macedonian churches. He talks about what you said and what they said. There's, no, there's nothing secret here. And there is the, the requirement for confidentiality when it comes to church finances. But confidentiality is not a synonym for secrecy. It's not the same thing. He's open. He's transparent. He said, you promised to give, so are you going to do it? It's refreshing. And no doubt this letter to the two Corinthians would be read out in a church meeting, a little bit like what we're having uh, on, on Tuesday. I mean, the one thing that is sure far true is that human beings don't change awfully much, and the whole church would have gathered, and they would have thought about finance, and they would have had Paul's letter, and we're going to have Paul's letter with us on, on, on Tuesday. So Paul has an important role in all of this. He's not delegating everything when it comes to finance. But he does give responsibility to others. He appoints three others, Titus, and two others who are unnamed to go to Corinth before Paul. And the, the, what Paul is doing is he's appointing these three people, and he's sending them ahead of him to Corinth to do two things. Um, one, to talk personally to the people in the church about their giving. It's not him who's doing that personally. He's doing it kind of from afar, and he's doing it in a general way. But he appoints people who will go there and speak to them personally, speak to the individuals, the leaders in the church, whoever. And he's also appointing that group of three to take responsibility for the oversight or the practical arrangements. In other words, I don't know how they did it, but it was all cash then, of course, and we don't have cash. Um, but uh, how they would manage it, how they would look after it, how they would ensure it was protected, and how they would ensure that no one... Uh, that, that no one thought that, 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 that it wasn't being done carefully and, 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 
and, and godly. The first person was Titus. And Titus is quite a famous fellow in the Bible. He was a, like a bishop. He was a, 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 a gospel minister. He, he was in charge of churches all over Crete later on in his ministry, a companion of Paul. Look what's written about him, verses 16 to 17. Thanks be to God who put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care I have for you, for he not only accepted our appeal, Titus, will you go to Corinth and speak to them about money, but being himself very earnest, he is going to you of his own accord. Second person was someone appointed by the churches to be involved in the appeal. In other words, he was appointed by all of the churches like Thessalonica and Philippi and Berea and Corinth. We don't know the person's name, but they obviously did. I mean, Paul, the brother who was appointed by all the churches, what does he say about him? With him, verse 18, with Titus, we are sending the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. And not only that, but he has been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace that is being ministered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show the goodwill. So this guy is a, a kind of well-known preacher, but he has been appointed to, to ensure that things are done well, transparently, governance, accountability, all that stuff. The third person, another brother, who's unnamed but obviously known to them, and that's clear from what Paul writes in verse 22, with them we are sending our brother, whom we have often tested and found earnest in many matters, but who is now more earnest than ever because of his great confidence in you. So these are the three, and you can imagine the church meeting, somebody puts their hand up and says, um, excuse me, um, can any of them count? Do any of them know anything about money? Of course they do. Of course they do. I mean, I, of course they do. I, but that's not what he focuses on. It's really striking. Now, it seems the first two, Titus and the brother appointed by the churches, had the qualifications for what the Bible would say elders would have. They're teachers, they're preachers. So why are they getting involved in all of this? The third one, well, maybe the third one is, is like a deacon in the Bible. I only say that because he's slightly different in what they say about him. It may be that that person had been trusted over many years in, 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 in practical care, in practical matters, in, in the governance and the handling of money, and that's why he is, is, is there. It's a kind of combination group. And no doubt this group of three would have implemented sensible procedures. No doubt they could count between them. And no doubt they had the requisite gifts to undertake the task. But what Paul emphasizes is their godly character, that they are tried, they are tested, and they're uh, proven. And one of the striking features of godliness, he brings out, is desire. They want to do it. They want to do it. And we'll see next week when it comes to giving ourselves, there's got to be a desire God loves a cheerful giver. That was September on the calendar. He loves a cheerful giver. He doesn't want a grumpy giver. And he doesn't want people on a finance committee who don't want to be there. It's a, a wonderful thing about serving. Let me apply this in the area of church finances. Vision. Vision is important. So when you look at a church's 
set of financial statements. And in Norman, at the meeting on Tuesday, the chair of our finance group, Norman's an elder, Norman will do a quick summary of the financial statements. You'll be welcome to the full 46 pages. And if you sat down with an interpreter, what these 46 pages would tell you is the gospel vision of that church. That's exactly what they tell you in accounting words, in accounting numbers. And in a church, the finances and the gospel vision go hand in hand. Money enables gospel ministry. So they go hand in hand. So the financial function of a church needs vision in the same way as the financial function of a business needs vision. It's exactly the same. And the finances of a church need transparency, openness. So when we uh, find ourselves having a surplus, which admittedly is a rare event, uh, would it be right for the finance team and the elders not to tell anyone and squirrel it away and pretend that there was no surplus? You might think, well, of course that's not right, but these things happen. Or if there is a, a deficit, which is more common and what we are currently uh, facing, not that common, we try and hit the line of break-even, but we are facing a, a challenging situation, would it be wrong for us not to tell you? Would it be, uh, yes, uh, should we kind of set this up and do all the Bible teaching on giving and then let the cat out of the bag about half past nine on Tuesday night, or not half nine, nine o'clock on Tuesday night? No, we, we fronted up to it in December. Is that right? It's the right thing to do, being transparent. Now, we might need to become more transparent to give more regular updates. All of that is important. And what about protocols and procedures? In the old days, and John, our former treasurer, is sitting there, in the old days of cash, was it right that John would never count the money unless David was with him? 100%. That's just good practice. It's good practice. The way that all of our finances work, there are protocols and procedures. Is it right that when the staff or when a trustee or, or whoever has some expense that they just go into a big box of cash upstairs and take out what they're due? No. They fill in forms. There's records. That's really important. But most important by far is the appointment of godly people to be set apart with responsibility for finance. That, our default is not that. Our default is to look around and to say, who is the... And this may not... This, if this person's godly, well, that's a godsend. Who is the entrepreneur who can help us move to a new level? Who is the best person in the church to, to lead our finance team because they are the most able financially? That's not the right question to ask. Now, we're not burying our heads in the sand they do need to be able to count, or they need one person to be able to count. But they need to be godly. That's 
critical. Every, every, every leadership role in the life of a church, godliness is the primary qualification. So let me put our finance team on the line. You need to know who they are. Uh, Norman, who's sitting there, is the chair of our finance team. Norman is an elder. And I think we get real encouragement from this passage in Corinthians that it's a combination of elders and deacons. I think that's right. Uh, alongside Norman is Willie, who is also uh, an elder. Andrew Wright, who is our treasurer, who followed on from John, um, is a deacon in the church. And that's an important office. Lucy Marriott, who was here in the first service, has been appointed to uh, handle our gift aid. Now, I hope and pray that Lucy can manage to do gift aid. But she is a woman of God. And that is why she is there. And that is so important. Now, we can generalize that to other areas of church life. We're about to have a major focus on serving. And the reason we're doing that, that will be communicated on um, Tuesday night, and then Jay will pick that up in February and March with us as a church, because we want everybody to serve. And there are people in Chalmers who are new and have not found their way to serving, and there are people who are here and gifted and, and who aren't uh, yet being able to express their giftedness in serving. But again, it comes in God's timing at a right season for us as a church, for a church is able to, to, to find uh, and to put the, the square pegs in the, let me get this right, square holes, when that church is growing up in godliness. Now is the right time to do this. Our MAP and LIT programs, our training programs for ministry associates and leaders in training, there are two things that we focus on, developing their gifts to teach the Bible and deepening their godliness. The older ones, the leaders in training, um, they learn all sorts of stuff uh, about what it means to be in ministry, like writing endless references for all of you. Endless references. And they need to learn these skills and many, 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 many other things that you need to do. They need to learn about finance a bit. They need to know who to appoint to these committees. But the most important things is they need to teach the Bible and they need to be godly. That's the emphasis. And right through church life, good governance. I sometimes despair when I read the staff handbook, all 50, however many pages of it. Would it be better just not to have one because we're a church? Would it be better not to have a, a rigorous safeguarding policy because we are a church? Churches should excel in these matters and lead the way. Think back to um, the, the reason. It matters in the eyes of God and it matters in the eyes of the watching world. Now, I look back in the last uh, um, however many years I've been a minister, 13 now here, let me just single out three people, not for, um, just to tell you that this goes on, not because it's them, it's three people, but they are real people, uh, Willie Stewart again, and David Laying and Alan McKenzie. Um, we could call each of them Mr. Protocol. Governance, structures, 
to set up a church from scratch, to set up another church, Redeemer, to buy a building, to rent a building, to, to lease buildings, to uh, pay for buildings, to, to do endless, endless reports for the charity regulator who are watching, watching, watching. Does that matter? 100%. 100%. Now, just in case you think that protocols and procedures uh, are unloving, far from it, I think it's quite the opposite. Just look at verse uh, 24. Give proof before the churches of your love. It's a strange thing to talk about when you're talking about financial procedures. Proof of your love. To do things well and thoroughly. There are dangers. There are dangers. You can become overly focused on red tape. But by and large, to do things well is an expression of love. Now, what does Paul mean in verse 24 about boasting? What's he been boasting about to Titus and the two others? The NIV, I think, is a better translation. Uh, Therefore, show these men, this is the NIV, the proof of your love, this is verse 24, and the reason for our pride in you. The Corinthian church had promised to give, and for that reason that Paul was able to encourage the other churches to give. It's like seed corn funding, match funding. They're going to give, are you going to give? What Thomas Chalmers did in the 19th century, Thomas Chalmers, after whom this church is named, whose house is just next to us, no coincidence, uh, he, he encouraged groups of people, hundreds of them across the country, uh, to, to give to fund buildings. And they looked to the next village and the next village, and it inspired people all across the country uh, to do that. And in particular, the Macedonian churches had followed up their promise They'd agreed to give because of the Corinthian churches. The difference is that the Macedonian churches had gone from promise to cash. The Corinthian churches had gone from promise to nothing yet. Now, second point, and really quickly, as I said, because we're going to pick up on this next week. It matters a great deal that you do what you promised. That's generally true in the Christian life, isn't it? I will pray for you. Now, who of us has said, I will pray for you and always prayed for you? None of us. All of us have messed up. But let's just think about that. It's important, isn't it? I will pray for you. I will uh, come and uh, see you. You know the the impact it makes if you say to somebody, thank you for sharing that with me. Leave it with me. Um, Like, I don't know the answer. I'll come back to you and you do. And they're always shocked because it mustn't happen very much. I I will come and see. I'll talk to you. Do it. So important. It's equally true when it comes to giving. Um, verses, nine to f- verses 1 to 5 of chapter 9, let's just read them uh, again uh, quickly. It's superfluous uh, for me to write to you about the ministry of the saints. You guys say, well, why is he writing then? And I think what he's doing is that you can, you can teach and preach from the Bible. We can read God's Word and it can just bounce off. It can go in one ear and out the other. And what he's saying is that as I'm writing this to you, I'm praying that the Holy Spirit will be applying this to your hearts at the same time. So it's superfluous because you're already up for this. It's a bit like he said, I'm going to ask Titus to go, and God has been working in Titus' heart and say, I want to go. 
superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints, for I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, uh, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year. Your zeal has stirred up most of them. I'm sending the brothers so that your boasting about you may not prove empty, so that you may be ready, as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing for you for being so confident. It's striking how Paul doesn't sort of, he's just direct, isn't he? You know what he's saying. See through on what you promised to do. Um, he is intending himself to come to Corinth to collect the gift uh, and take it along with what had been gifted from the other churches. But as we have already explained, he is sending Titus and the two brothers uh, to give the Corinthians time to collect the money before he arrives. And he wants them to talk uh, to them. So, so I might, as, as minister, talk about money in a general sense and vision. It's uh, Norman and Willie and uh, Andrew and uh, um, Lucy's job to have the one-on-one -on -one conversations with you. And more importantly, that they will deal with the administration and the management of uh, the giving. Now, just imagine, for this church in uh, the Macedonian churches, Philippi or Thessalonica, who are really facing tough, tough times. And they have got no money, and yet they have given according to their means and some above their means. If they found out that the church that inspired them was lying. Now, oh, you might say to them, well, don't, don't be affected by that because they are flawed and it's the Lord Jesus you need to look to. But of course they would. Of course they'd be let down. Junior's got a little cough now. Just my second request to you to stop looking at Junior. He's very sweet. Now he's, um, she is very young. You know, a really good bit of practical advice for you guys who are undergrads or first, first jobs is sort out stuff like Christian giving when you're young. And it will never be hard to do it again. Very difficult to start when you've accumulated a great deal of stuff. Start young. Put the habits in place. And Adam and his team will do that with you guys as uh, 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 students. Uh, one of my children, uh, who is not here, uh, was saying to me, Dad, should I be giving out of my overdraft? <laughs> So I said, have you told your mother that you've got an overdraft? <laughs> Dad, would you like to remove my overdraft? <laughs> I, I don't know the answer to that. But the principle of starting to think when you're young about what you do is, is really uh, important. And you see, if as a, you can think of it practically, if, and we're, we're, we're never going to talk about amounts and percentages, but we talk about generosity and and giving according to our means, and, and, and giving above our means, and, and doing it out of love for God, and making it our number one thing, and not letting the idol of money wreck our lives. That could mean a fair chunk of your salary, and it takes bottle to set up that standing order. In the old days, it took more bottle to actually get the money out of the wall. So it's easier for you guys now, electronically. But it does take bottle, and you try and do that 10, 15 years down the track, 
It's more difficult when you've got all these bills to pay. Let me give you some practical examples of why this matters. It matters because it matters to God. What we do as a church and what we do as individuals. And it matters as others look to us. So, when Redeemer was planted three years ago, we promised them. We promised them that we would pay for the refurbishment of their building. We promised them that we would provide for them funding for the first three years of their church's life, or something like that. Would it have compromised our relationship and partnership with them if we were lying, or if we just didn't do it, or if we had no intention of doing it? 100%. Might also have meant that the church foundered. Charleston, where Andy and Kyrene are in Dundee, they have not needed our financial support for this year and last, but Andy and Kyrene have been able to buy a house, which has totally transformed their heart, their vision for Charleston, because they are now one of the people in that housing scheme. And come next summer, they're going to need money. And if we are able to give it, our commitment to them is to do it. What about our mission partners? One of our mission partners is facing an obvious financial need. And one of the things we'll say on Tuesday as we plan for the future is to say that is part of our planning. Do we mean what we say? So important. Will we see it through? Individually, it matters for our own discipleship. It matters for the sake of others. It matters for elders setting an example to the congregation way back in 20-something or other when we bought this building. The elders had to buy it before you knew about it for all sorts of sensible reasons, confidentiality and stuff like that. Um, it was off market when it was bought. You need to do that. And as a way of uh, encouraging the congregation and because that's what leaders do, uh, they um, pledged half a million pounds as a group to the purchase and refurbishment of it. What would it have done for um, your confidence in your leaders here if that was uh, a lie? Or if that was a spin to encourage you to give? Or if they just didn't see through on it? There's a lovely little text at the end in case you might mishear any of this. What does it say right at the end? So I thought it necessary, this is verse 5, to urge the brothers to go ahead of you to arrange in advance for the gift you have promised. Notice, so it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. There is no tax in the kingdom of God. There's a wonderful thing called gift aid in the kingdom of man, which means we get the tax back. You know how much that is? About 80,000 a year we get back when you fill in a form. That's a wonderful thing. There is no tax in the kingdom of God. It's all of grace. And giving is never an exaction. It is a willing gift. And what we're robbing ourselves of if we do not give money is joy. Simple 
and pure as that. And I don't think I've seen you as a congregation uh, smile as much as when you're watching her. <laughs> I've not seen you smile as much in a long time through a series of sermons than on these sermons on money and giving. So let's thank God that he's raising our affections for Jesus all the time. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you very much for the practical teaching on giving. Thank you for uh, the spirit with which we are thinking on these things, which is surely God-given. And we pray that as we gather together on Tuesday, we would uh, relish like these uh, uh, churches uh, that we are reading of here, relish the joy of being part of giving for the work of the gospel. Lord, bless our students now as they gather for student lunch at the start of this new term. We pray for a really good time. Thank you for uh, Catherine and uh, for Vivian who have made the soup and are serving the lunch. Thank you for all those who serve in these ways. And uh, pray for us now as we sing in response to uh, your word.